0: Welcome back to Thinking Theologically, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right as we're recording. I'll be doing better, I think, when this comes out, because we're recording pre-Thanksgiving, but this episode is coming out
0: post-Thanksgiving glow. (laughs) Post-Thanksgiving.
1: Uh, so, it'll be, a almost, almost to Christmas, get to take some time off, friends and family, eat a lot of food, so, yeah, yeah. good, but when this comes out, better, hopefully.
0: I'll be traveling, we know what that means, going back a couple episodes, um, where you traveled, so I'll probably be sick, and... Uh, tired two in, of us. in need of a vacation for the vacation. Right. So, but that's all right. Looking forward to the food, a little bit of time off. And, uh, hopefully you listening are looking forward to the conclusion of this. Well, okay. <laughs> it's, what was going to be one episode is now two, but this is only the beginning of what we're going to do. As far as inspiration is concerned, this is laying another foundation for, uh, the next several episodes. Uh, that will take us into next year because we'll have one more episode after this that'll come out in December.
1: And who and knows then... what that's going to be on? Who knows? <laughs> there's so many directions <laughs>
0: we could go. <laughs> uh, it'll be inspiration adjacent somehow, but there's a lot of topics that are kind of sitting with the inspiration here. So, uh, And then we'll see you sometime after, after we get into uh, 2022. So there we go. Um, if you have any topics for us, though we are on an inspiration kick right now, it uh, might be good to take some breaks in between there, or maybe you have some ideas about inspiration that you think would be good for us to talk about and to cover, you can let us know at our email, strongchurchministries at gmail.com, or getting a hold of either us of us on Facebook, or just getting a hold of Spencer on Twitter, if you want to do that. Though the character limit is so short, I think all you could accomplish there is just getting upset with him. So well, that's why I'm that, not on Twitter. <laughs> that
1: may be preferable if they want a response from me because I can't be too lengthy. I've got to keep it. That's a good the, point. The <laughs> word count. So, or the character Go to Twitter limit, for so. the
0: short answers. Come to the podcast for the long answers. That's that's how we do it here on this show. There you go. Uh, in continuing inspiration, before we get going here, we wanted to remind you what the last episode was about. We're not going to recap it too much, though we'll state a few things here. Uh, so if you want a, a bigger picture of what we talked about, you need to go listen to the last podcast, which was, I think, 50 minutes of outside of our intro banter, like 50 minutes of actual content on inspiration. So... We're not going to recap that here. Go listen to that, uh, and then come back and pick up where you left off. From there, one right after the other. We talked about theories of inspiration. We went to we went from a very conservative uh, view to a a lot more, in contrast, a, a lot more uh, liberal or progressive sort of view. Uh, we talked about five and mentioned that well. I won't mention them here, uh, but we talked about five different theories. There are way more than just five, and if you want kind of an explanation of what those five were, uh, you go listen to the last episode, and we'll get all of that sorted for you. Uh, And then most of the episode was spent talking about the purpose of Scripture, what Scripture is trying to do, Uh, and just to recap that briefly, three thoughts. Uh, One— Scripture is primarily theological, that is, it's about God, uh, not historical or scientific. The purpose of Scripture is to talk about God, reveal God, uh, It's God's Word. The the idea is not that it's going to give us a historical timeline about things or events, though it may do that, Um, and it's not going to lay out here are all these answers, scientific answers for this, that, or the other thing. Though it may do that to some degree, that's not the point. The point is primarily theological. Uh, Number two, Scripture is the human witness authorized by God to the ways God has revealed himself in human history through his interactions with humanity, the pinnacle being his ultimate self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Uh, Kind of our Uh, Our working definition that we gave uh, last episode about uh, Scripture's purpose, it's humans witnessing to God in ways that God has uh, approved and authorized uh, to fulfill that theological part of the purpose of Scripture uh, and reveal Himself in Jesus Christ and and how we connect with that as human beings. So uh, that's purpose of Scripture. And then number three here, Now, the purpose of God's self-revelation is to put the entire creation to rights, enter into an eternal relationship with humanity, uh, the idea being there. Scripture witnesses to a bigger story than that which its pages contain. There are even some quotes within Scripture that say, look, Jesus did more stuff than this. We just don't have—we didn't write it down. Okay, you've got what you need. Understand that there's something bigger going on here and all of that. We're a part of that big picture. Scripture testifies to who God is uh, and how he's revealed himself to us. also testifies to our part in that story uh, and how that is to be continued into today and how that was started in human history and how all of that continues now. So if you want more of an explanation on that, uh, go listen to the last episode. Can't stress that enough. Uh, and that episode plus this one will give you uh, a good foundation at the very least for our purposes uh, of what we're going to be doing with the subject uh, topic here of inspiration. Anything to add on that, Spencer, before we get into the new stuff on this episode?
1: No, I, I think that that kind of covers, like you said, what we did last week, the, the foundation that we've begun to build as we kind of try to figure out the nuts and bolts of inspiration kind of like we said last week we're talking about this from the assumption that both of us and that uh, those of you listening that we're all coming from a belief that scripture is inspired but trying to figure out how exactly does that work how did god inspire not did he but how did he yeah uh, which we're going to continue to to look at what that means in this episode
0: yeah, we'll apply it a little more specifically here. So we, we looked at theories, and we looked at purpose last week. We're going to start this week in this episode here with uh, talking about the implications of inspiration. Okay, After talking about the purpose, what Scripture is trying to accomplish, what are some of the implications of that? We've got three. Uh, Spencer, why don't you start us out with number one, uh, that uh, the first implication of inspiration is salvific.
1: Yeah, so with... You know, the idea of the implications is when you better understand what Scripture is trying to do, mentioned in the the last episode that too often we want to build a theory of inspiration, how inspiration works uh, based on what we want Scripture to do and not on what Scripture is actually trying to do. That's kind of the place you have to start is to ask, well, what is Scripture trying to do? And then based on what it's trying to do, we can then understand, okay, now, now how did God inspire this? And so when you take the purpose of Scripture being theological, it's primarily trying to tell us something about God. And so through Scripture, God reveals Himself to us. We learn something about God, the pinnacle being Jesus. God reveals Himself most fully in the work of Jesus. And so what Scripture is is doing is it's presenting us the entire story of God from creation a new creation in light of the cross, in light of Jesus, Jesus being kind of the foundation of the entire story. And so that's what Scripture is, the human witness to this story. And so when you understand that, that purpose and that God inspired Scripture for, for that purpose, to witness to God, to witness to God's story in Jesus— what does that mean? What, what are some of the implications that we can draw from understanding Scripture in this way? And as you said, the first is that it's it's salvific. Because again, Scripture points us to Jesus. It, scripture witnesses, is a human witness to God's story in Jesus. Jesus being the center of the story of God to put the entire creation to rights. And so it's in Jesus that salvation is found. And so that makes Scripture salvific because it points us to Jesus, and in Jesus we find salvation. Now, I want to make sure we have a fully expansive and all-encompassing view of salvation. We mentioned this in the last episode, that salvation, at least as Scripture talks about it, is not just an individual thing, but it's a cosmic thing. It's not Salvation is not just God saving human beings from their sins, but salvation in Scripture is God putting the entire creation to rights, making the entire creation human beings as a part of that, making it all in the way that God originally created and designed the creation, created and designed human beings to live, to operate, to interact with one another, and to interact with God. That's the story of God, to put the entire creation to rights. And God is doing that through Jesus. And again, what does Scripture do? It witnesses to God's actions in the world. It witnesses to God's story in trying to make the world right. The pinnacle of that witness being in Jesus, the center point in which God is turning everything right. It's through Jesus that God is putting the world right to rights. And so scripture being salvific, because it points us to Jesus, I want to stress that the the salvation that scripture offers isn't what scripture doesn't save us, right? Believing in scripture doesn't save us. Following scripture doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But We learn about Jesus, we see what it means to follow Jesus, Uh, we see what it means to make ourselves a part of God's story, which we're going to talk about more with the next point. All of that is witness to us in Scripture, and I can't stress that enough, that Scripture witnesses to a story that's bigger than just what's contained in its pages. Right, Because too often we want to say, well, Scripture is salvific because you just follow the Bible and you'll be saved. Well, that's not only works righteousness, but that leaves Jesus out of the picture. That's not how Scripture is salvific. Yes, through Scripture, we find out things to do, things not to do, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But Scripture is salvific because it tells us God's story of salvation. It tells us how God is doing it through Jesus And it points us to Jesus. It tells us about Jesus, and it's in Jesus. It's through putting our faith and trust in Jesus that we find salvation. And that's what Scripture is witnessing to. But again, we find salvation through Scripture, I think we could say, but not in Scripture. Because we find salvation in Jesus, and we encounter and are pointed to Jesus through the witness of Scripture.
0: I think you put that well uh, in explanation. And if you noticed, uh, the purpose that we recapped, Spencer referred back to the purpose multiple times. The different parts that we mentioned there. Uh, so all of these all these implications uh, go back to that idea. Of what purpose of Scripture is this? Shows it in this way, uh, and it's through Scripture that we see. Jesus, we find out how salvation worked, uh, works, uh, how all of that stuff came to be, how we join ourselves to that big picture as well. Um, So there's number one. Uh, Number two, implication here, a little bit longer uh, and already alluded to somewhat, uh, the implication of inspiration is that uh, scripture is authoritative, uh, that it has authority or should have authority in our lives. What do you
1: mean by that, Spencer. So we mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, that scripture is not the only way that God reveals himself to us. I, I, th- I think maybe the best way to think about other ways is things like creation. Even scripture yeah, talks yeah. about that. Psalm 19, Paul talks about it in Romans, that uh, we, we learn something about God through the things that he has created. So we can look yeah. at creation and learn things about God Uh we, we encounter God through other people, uh, through art, through music, through uh, the Spirit's work in our lives. I mean, th- th- there's other ways that we encounter God and learn things about God, uh, but Scripture is the only authorized witness uh, to God. It, it's God's authorized witness to His own self-revelation. It, it's got, scripture has God's stamp of approval on it, which these other ways of God revealing himself uh, to us do not and so what that means is all the other ways that we encounter God, all the other ways that we learn things about God have to be validated by scripture that they have to put be put in a subservient role to God's witness in scripture because scripture is God's authorized witness. so in other words I may encounter God, in some other way in my life. And let's say I interpret that encounter as saying, well, God's okay with me murdering someone. Well, that encounter has to be validated by Scripture where Scripture would say, no, God doesn't approve of that kind of behavior. And so whatever I thought I experienced or encountered obviously wasn't of God. It was of something else. And so I think, first of all, that's important for us to understand is the authority of scriptures. While Scripture is not the only way that we can learn something about God or encounter God, uh, it is the most important way. All the other ways take a secondary role to Scripture, and they all must be validated and affirmed by Scripture. Uh, but also Scripture is authoritative as God's authorized witness, uh, we are to be obedient to Scripture, but I would want to redefine obedience in light of what we've talked about as the purpose of Scripture. So, the purpose of Scripture as witnessing to God's story in Jesus, Scripture as being salvific by pointing us to this story by pointing us to Jesus, not in and of itself, but what Scripture is pointing us towards, what Scripture is witnessing to, the idea of Scripture being authoritative, of us being obedient to Scripture, is not that we're obedient to Scripture as a law book, because that's not what Scripture is. Scripture isn't just a book of do's and don'ts that we are to follow. That's not the purpose of Scripture. Scripture is theological. Scripture is witnessing to God's story In Jesus. And so the idea of obedience to Scripture is not following Scripture as a law book. It's living as a part of God's story. And so as Scripture witnesses to God's story in Jesus, being obedient to Scripture means that we begin to live as characters in God's story, that we live as people who are following Jesus, who put our faith and trust in Jesus, who accept Jesus as Lord of our lives. And so that connects back with the idea of it being salvific, of we find salvation by being a part of God's story. We sal- we find salvation in Jesus, which is what Scripture witnesses to. And that's the idea of us being obedient to Scripture. And at least in my mind, this makes the most sense when I think of the idea of ethics, which we haven't talked about. A lot, I don't think, up to this point. At some point, we'll probably dive into it more. But the idea of ethics. So do's and don'ts, right and wrong. How do we as Christians determine what is right and what is wrong? What we are to do and what we are not to do. And I root ethics not in do's and don'ts of Scripture. If Scripture says do this, if Scripture says don't do that, because that easily leads to problems such as you know, in the Psalms, uh, you have praise for bashing babies' heads against rocks. So you've you, you've got to come up with something a little bit deeper yeah. than that. Um, so I root ethics in the nature of God, in who God is, and in creation, how God created us as human beings to live, how God created the creation to operate. And so that's where I root ethics in, in who God is and in how God created us, which again is theological. It's not obedience to Scripture as a law book, but it's obedience to Scripture as a book that witnesses to God's story, that reveals God to us, which is where I want to root ethics in. What's the right things to do? Where it's the things that are tied to God's very nature. God is a God of love. God is a God of justice, of mercy, of peace, of compassion, right? And the things that are opposite to that, hate, evil, injustice, right? Those are things we want to steer clear of and we want to move towards the things that are rooted in God's very nature and who God is. And those characteristics we see in Jesus who was god among us god like us god taking on human flesh we look at creation and we see ourselves as human beings created in the image of god we see the marriage relationship we see men and women we see our relationship with the the animal kingdom as well and we say okay this is the way god created us to live in relationship with one another with the creation with himself And that's where I'm going to root ethics, the way we are to live, the way we are not to live. And so that's encapsulated in the story that Scripture points us to. And so, yes, Scripture is authoritative, but it's not authoritative as a law book. It's authoritative as this is God's authorized witness. So all of our other ways of encountering God are subservient to Scripture. And then we desire to be obedient to Scripture— Not as a book of law, but as a book that witnesses to God's story in Jesus, which we are striving to live as a part of, to be characters in God's story rather than in our story or the world's story or anything like that. And that's what makes Scripture authoritative. Again, it's not Scripture in and of itself that's authoritative, but it's the God that Scripture witnesses to and the God that has put his stamp of approval on Scripture. Because if there's no God beyond Scripture, then Scripture is just a bunch of human words. But if there's yeah. a God sitting behind it, that's where the authority comes in the story of God and Jesus.
0: Yeah, the the word that came to mind through all that was uh, transformative. And when you connected it to the salvific part of all of this, that, yeah, we— we are changed. Uh, obedience is not a, a checklist sort of deal, but the us joining into the story, we've, we've uh, joined ourselves as part of it and said, Jesus, I accept the, the salvation you have to offer. Uh, and then we become a part of that movement uh, that's there, which means living a certain way, uh, but not in getting it checked off the list, but in just being different. Uh, because as you said at the beginning, uh, scripture is uh, pointing to something bigger uh, than than what's contained within it, uh, and makes us a part of this big grand story uh, that changes who we are as characters or uh, individuals. It's not about running things off the list here. So, number three uh, on implications, uh, you started getting into this a little bit, too, about the God behind the Scripture with authoritative. Uh, Scripture is also trustworthy. That's the implication of inspiration here. Uh, Talk to us a little bit
1: about the trustworthiness of Scripture. Well, like you mentioned with God sitting behind Scripture, because that's true, since Scripture is God-approved, God-authorized witness to God— then we have to believe that Scripture can be relied upon as true, that we can consider it trustworthy. But again, like everything we've been trying to do, we need to tie the idea of trustworthiness back to our definition of the purpose of Scripture. Because too often what we try to do in saying that Scripture is true, that Scripture is trustworthy, is we want to force Scripture to be true in the way that we define the purpose of Scripture, or true in the way that we want it to be true, true in the way that we would define truth, true in the way that our post-modern society or even a modern world defines truth, rather than allowing Scripture to define itself as trustworthy to understand how Scripture understands itself to be true. And so when we begin to to go back and think of Scripture as being true, let's think of what is Scripture trying to do? Well, it's telling us something about God. It's witnessing to the story of God in Jesus, which makes it salvific and authoritative because as witnessing to God's story in Jesus, it also witnesses to how We become characters in that story. How we take part in that story, which is where we find our salvation in Jesus, which is where we root our ethics, where we root our obedience, is by becoming a part of God's story. That's what Scripture is trying to do. And so the first thing we have to say is Scripture is trustworthy in that way. We can trust Scripture. We can rely upon Scripture as true for what it is trying to do. And that is, it's trying to witness to God for the purpose of telling us the story of God in Jesus, that through what Jesus is doing, and then how Scripture witnesses to what God is doing in Jesus. God's trying to put the world to rights. It's Scripture's calling us to take a part in this larger story of God. It's pointing to something beyond itself. And in Scripture, pursuing after that purpose, we can trust Scripture. In other words, when we go to Scripture, we can trust that in Scripture, we're finding the right story of God. It's not the wrong story. It's the right story. And so in Scripture, we find the right story to be a part of. In Scripture, we learn correctly about God, correctly about Jesus. And so through Scripture, we can trust we can find salvation. In true, and through Scripture, we can trust that we can find the right ethics, the way that God created and designed us to live, that we can encounter the true and the living God, that we can begin moving in the direction of developing this relationship with God. We can trust that all those things can be found in Scripture. But when I say that, that moves us to a question that you may or may not have had up to this point. It moves us to a question of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. That is, is Scripture without error? When when someone affirms that Scripture is inerrant or infallible, typically what they're affirming is that Scripture is without error in everything. It's without error theologically. It's without error historically. It's without error scientifically. In everything that it says and does, Scripture is without error. And just to give my personal beliefs, where I'm at, I would affirm that Scripture is inerrant and that it is infallible, that Scripture is without error. But I would say I think we need to redefine what we mean by that term inerrant. First, we need to make sure that we're connecting it to the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture— again, is to witness to the story of God in Jesus. That is the primary thing the authors are trying to do, is witness to God. So let's make sure that we're tying it back to the purpose of Scripture. I would also say that when we're talking about inerrancy, I don't think it's something that we can definitively prove that Scripture is without error, and this is why. Let's think about... The historical things that Scripture says, Uh, some of which, as we've talked about in the last episode, need to be historically true for the story of God to make sense and not fall apart. Others, we can perfectly fine assert, yeah, maybe they're metaphorical. Maybe they're like Jesus parables, uh, things of of that nature. They, They don't have to be historical, but there are other things that have to be historically true. And one example is Jesus, right? The the gospel stories of who Jesus is, the kind of things that Jesus taught, that Jesus was born, lived, died, and was raised, are things that need to be true. Otherwise, the story falls apart because it's the story of God in Jesus, through Jesus. But I don't think there's any way that you can affirm the historical or prove the historical inerrancy of scripture and th- this is why one because we weren't there right so if sometimes what we try to do and make things historically fit together is we are forced to create a story and say well this is what must have happened because this is what makes things sense what sure. what makes everything we have make sense well the problem with that is we're just making stuff up We don't know whether that's what happened or what not happened. And when we do that, we're actually missing the theological point that the authors are trying to say. And so while I think you could say, yeah, there's some way to fit all these things together. Let's not try and force them together, force puzzle pieces together when we don't have all the pieces. That's the problem. We try to construct a puzzle with only part of the pieces with only half the pieces or a fourth of the pieces. And then we just end up making stuff up. Which I think a lot of the time just makes us look foolish in what we're trying to do. So one, we weren't there. And so we don't know what exactly happened. And then we don't know the author's original intent. Because that's something else to, to understand. So we're reading something and we have to figure out, well, what's the author trying to do? Is he trying to tell us something historical, or is he trying to do something different? And unless you know how to resurrect Matthew, you're going to have a difficult time asking him what his intent in writing this story was. And so again, we could sit back and try to guess, and there may be some legitimacy in that and trying to figure out. Like the context of Paul's letter to the Romans, for example. Well, what problems was Paul trying to address? Who was he writing? Things like that that are helpful for interpretation. But ultimately, we have to realize that we're guessing at intent, that we don't know for sure, and that we very well may be wrong in the conclusions that we come to about the author's intent. Because again, to make something true, we have to understand what was the author trying to do? Right. There's a big difference in me trying to say something historical and lying about it, being untruthful. There's a completely other thing with me trying to tell a fictitious story to make a point. And I can be truthful in doing that. And so the author's intent is important to that. Uh, The fact of us not being there and not knowing for sure what happened is important to realize. And then when we start to think about the scientific things in Scripture, again, going back to Scripture's purf- purpose, we need to understand that the authors are trying to witness to and to explain what God is doing in the world in the best way that they know how. Um, Again, The the way that I think about this, we talked about this in the last episode. When you read the Old Testament, it's coming from the foundation of a different cosmology, a different understanding of how the universe works than we have. We talked about the firmament, the pillars holding up the the sky, mountains being a part of that, and then God being up there, Shaul being down there, and all of those kinds of uh, uh, things. And so when God acts in the world, When God does something, what the Old Testament writers are doing is they're witnessing to what God has done and trying with a limited human language, with a limited understanding of the world to explain what God has done. Again, that's understanding scripture as theological. They're not trying to tell us this is the way the world works. They're trying with their knowledge and their words to explain to us what God is doing in the world, what God has done in their life, what God has done in the life of Israel or whoever it is that's writing or whatever story that it is that's being told. Again, that's what scripture is trying to do. And so when we say Yes, Scripture is errant without error. I would want to say yes, but we must tie that to Scripture's purpose as first and foremost being theological, pointing us to the story of God and Jesus. We have to understand historically that we weren't there, so we don't know what happened. We don't know what the authors are trying to do or not trying to do in the stories that they are telling. And then we have to understand that as a theological work, the writers are using their knowledge and their words to witness to God and try to explain as best as they can what it is God is doing. And so, when I think we understand what Scripture is doing and our relationship to Scripture and the events of Scripture, I think we can then come to a better understanding and a better definition not only of inspiration, but also begin moving in a better direction when we talk about Scripture as being inerrant or without error when we tie it to these purposes of of Scripture. But not only do I think we need to do that, but this is, I'll pause here for a minute before we move on to the next point, but we also, I think, need to redefine a little bit what makes something true, right? Because to say Scripture is with... Without error, that it's inerrant, that it's infallible, is also to say that Scripture is completely true. Right? That's the flip side of it. To say it's without error is to say that it's completely true. Well, not only do we need to tie that to Scripture's purpose, as we've just talked about, we also need to define, well, what do we mean by true? What makes something true? If we're going to say that Scripture is completely true, we kind of need to not only define what Scripture is, but we also need to define what truth is.
0: Yeah, so let's let's talk about that question. Uh, what makes uh, something true? If we're going to say that inspiration means that uh, within Scripture we have uh, salvation and uh, authority with God being behind Scripture— and so we can trust it, having those parameters, or at least uh, the way we're defining it kind of set there, uh, then how do we determine that something is true? A question I haven't really thought of until uh, we started talking last week about these particular episodes, but there's uh, it, there's a little more to it than what I thought originally. We actually have three uh, pieces to this here. Uh, it'll move a little quicker than what we just did, but uh, three pieces to this of how how something is defined as, as true. Uh, number one is that there's truth to be found in history, and as soon as I say that, you should be thinking about Scripture's main purpose is theological, not historical. But there is truth in history. Uh, Spencer, what do we see as far as um, Scripture is concerned about uh, truth in history?
1: Yeah, so there's three different things that make something true. You have what you just said. You've got truth in history, which is something that is historically factual, that historically happened. Uh, So the statement, Jesus of Nazareth was a man who lived in first century Palestine and died by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman Empire, is a true statement. And it's a true statement as truth in history because it's something that historically happened and we have those kinds of truths in scripture again last episode i mentioned some of the things that have to be historically true for the story of god as presented in scripture to stand so we can say those things like G- like jesus living dying resurrecting uh we've we've got to be able to say things like god called abraham that god led the people of I- Israel out of slavery in Egypt through Moses, stories like that that we have to say are true historically, are truth in history. They happened historically. They are historically factual. But that is not the only way for a statement or a story to be true. And that's where we get a big problem when we go to Scripture as without error and saying it's perfectly true, is we want to make everything in Scripture truth in history, because for whatever reason in our minds, it's the only thing that makes something true. But that's not the only thing that makes something true. So you not only have truth in history, but you also have truth in story. And this is something, this is a truth that did not necessarily happen, but is true within a certain story world. So here's an example Uh, Here's a Star Wars example. The statement, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) the statement, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father, is a true statement, right? We we would all agree that is a true statement. But it's not a historical truth, right? There's no real person named Darth Vader. There's no real person named Luke Skywalker that were father and son. The characters that played these people were not father and son. But it's a true statement because it's true within the story world of Star Wars. And so we would say that the statement Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father is true, but it's truth in story. It's true as it refers to the story world of Star Wars. So let me give you a biblical example. Again, I said last week that a story such as the story of Jonah does not have to be true for the theological purpose or the theological story of Scripture to stand. But yet, Jesus makes statements such as, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a fish— The Son of Man will be in the the earth. Jesus makes teachings like that. Well, that could be truth in history. There's two ways to interpret that. One is truth in history and say, yeah, the story of Jonah historically happened. And so Jesus is referring to a historical truth. Or we could say the story of Jonah is just a story, a fictitious story that's making a theological point. It's making a point about God. is making a point about how we are to be obedient to God. It's making a point about how we view other nations and how Jonah viewed Nineveh. I mean, we could go on and on and on with the application of the story of Jonah, right? But even if we said that, the statement, the same way Jonah was in the belly of a fish, would still be a true statement. It wouldn't be truth in history, but it would be true in story because it's true within the story world of Jonah. In the, It would be just as true as the statement, Darth Vader's Luke Skywalker's father, a true statement. And so something can be true, even if it's not historically true, which goes back to the importance of defining inerrancy in terms of understanding the author's intent and that we don't know for sure. We can make some guesses, we can try to figure it out, which I think is important for interpreting Scripture, but the point is we don't know, but at the same time understanding that the author's intent is important for understanding something is true. Is the author trying to say that this is truth in history, or is the author trying to say that this is truth in story, that I'm appealing to this truth that's found in the story world of Jonah or of Job or... Something like that. Hmm. So you have truth in history, something that has historically happened. If you have truth in story. You have something that's true within a particular story world. And then you have truth through story. And this is a real world truth that's delivered through a story that may or may not be historically true. So an example would be, you know, when you read your kids' A book, a fairy tale. It didn't really happen, but there's a moral to the story typically, right? And that moral is true. It's a real world moral truth that's told through a story. That's truth through story. We can think of movies that we've seen that aren't true stories, but give us valuable truths for the way the world works or the way we ought to interact with one another or things like that. You could go on and on and on with the things that we learn, the truths that are given through movies and film and books and things of that nature. Uh, A primary example, I think, in Scripture that we can probably all agree with each other on is the parables of Jesus. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Not a true story. There wasn't really a son who squandered his father's possessions and went and ate with the pigs and came back and an upset brother and so on and so forth. That's not a true story. But the purpose of that, the truth of that story isn't found in the, histor- in the story being historically true. It's be, It's found in the point of the story. The point of the story is presenting a real world moral truth. We understand the story itself isn't true, but that's not the point of the story. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to tell the truth in history. He's trying to tell the truth through a story. That through that story of the prodigal son, we learn a real world truth. And so there's three different ways that a statement in Scripture can be true. It can be true historically. Jesus lived, died, was raised. It can be... Truth in a story world, in the world of a story, something is true. Jonah was in the belly of a fish. Or there can be truth through a story. Jesus tells us parables, stories that didn't really happen, in order to make a true point. And so when we think about Scripture as true, when we think about Scripture as an errant or infallible, First, we need to tie it to its purpose. What is the purpose of Scripture? What is Scripture trying to do? And then we need to frame it in the context of what is the author trying to do? What kind of truth is this story trying to get across? Is it truth in history? Is it truth in story? Or is it truth through story? And I think when we frame it that way, a lot of problems that both Christians and non-Christians have with the way certain things are told or even not told in Scripture, I think a lot of those things begin to uh, be uh, pushed down. They, they begin to become unimportant when we understand, okay, the purpose of Scripture is to tell us something about God, and then there's multiple ways that in trying to do that, a statement can be true. What What is this statement? What is this story trying to do? What kind of truth? Is it trying to give us? And a lot of the times things can be true in more than one way, right? You can historically tell the story of Jesus. And so Jesus' resurrection is truth in history, but it's also truth through story because there's a bigger truth that that story, historical account of Jesus' resurrection is pointing us to. And so you don't always have to be stuck in one as well. There can be Multiple ways uh, that—let me give you another—this uh, just came to my mind, and uh, I probably shouldn't uh, give this example. But um, I think of something like a truth in story. Uh, Second Peter and Jude reference apocryphal works, such as Enoch. Uh, Jude has a reference to the Assumption of Moses, I believe. Yeah. Um. Yep, and it's debatable whether or not. See, you, you you can read that in in two ways. Jude may be saying, "Yeah, everything in Enoch or the assumption of Moses is inaccurate, but this is," and so he pulls that out and says, "Yeah, this is actually you know truth in history." Or Jude, for example, may very well be making a different point and saying, yeah, this isn't true, but I'm trying to tell you something else. Right. And so you get the idea of truth in story and truth through story by appealing to some of these different works. And again, it's kind of debatable what Jude or Peter are trying to do. Um, but it very well may be that they're just making a point about God, uh, and making that point by telling stories that their audience would have been familiar with. They would have been familiar with the Assumption of Moses. They would have been familiar with Enoch and things of that nature. and So very well could be saying, hey, you're familiar with these things. Let me use them to make a point. It's kind of like when a preacher uses an illustration and says, well, I know all of you have seen this TV show, so let me use it to make a point about God. That's not the preacher saying, oh, that TV show historically happened. No, he's referring to a truth in a story to make a, to state a truth through that story. And sometimes yeah. I think scripture's doing the same thing.
0: Paul would, uh, Paul has uh, several quotations of like poems and plays that were culturally relevant at the time of his writing uh, that we are pretty sure we know what he's referencing, but they're not, They're. it's not like they're, literary giant pieces of work or something that we care about all that much today. Uh, But he was taking things from those cultural plays and poems and then using them as illustrations within scripture. We have pieces of them uh, contained in scripture. Not saying that they actually happened, uh, but that there was truth, you know, the moral of the story uh, sort of thing there that we've uh, talked about here through what makes something true maybe that expanded your uh, talking to the listener now maybe that expanded kind of your idea of truth and how we've define how, how we define it I think we've uh, we've talked about it in terms of literal or figurative uh, when we've talked about scripture and interpreting those things is this a literal thing is this more figurative Um It's good to kind of understand what all is, maybe have a broader definition than just those two words. Um, Is Jesus literally telling the parable? Sure. Uh, Is the parable literal? No. Uh, It's moral of the story sort of deal. So uh, in that way, both of those things are taking place. Still true. We just have to be a little more clear with how we define all of those
1: things. And... I want to add that this this kind of falls under the implications of scripture being inspired because yes. no matter if something did or didn't you know historically happen, right? It still comes it still all comes from God. So, I'm not saying this, but let's just say for argument's sake, right? that you wanted to say, "Well, uh, you know, Matthew says Jesus said this, but I don't think he actually said it. Well, fine. It still comes from Jesus, technically, right? right. If, if, if you believe Scripture's inspired, it still comes from, from God. So the truth that's trying to be given through something being said, some story, some statement, whatever, uh, as, as we debate, well, is this historical? Is it figurative? Is it literal? You know, those are fine debates to have, but ultimately, if you believe it's inspired, then it's from God. And if you understand the purpose of Scripture, you have to say, well, it's from God for the point of revealing to us something about God. So don't take all your time debating of literal or figurative and miss the point. Yeah. And that is that God's sitting behind it, trying to reveal to us something about himself, about his story in Jesus.
0: Uh, real quick here as we uh, bring this one to a close, we probably could have, we probably could have three parted this, <laughs> uh, but as we bring this to a close here, um, uh, I th- well, we're, we're going to state uh, what we think a few options work. Do we want to state kind of which, which ones uh, we, surprise, surprise, Spencer and I agree, uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, on the, have the same conclusion. I promise we disagree with each other as well. Uh, it just worked out, I think in this one, um, uh, in, in our conclusion here, we have that options two, three or four work. So if you don't remember what those were, it's the verbal plenary inspiration that every word was dictated. Well, uh the, the ideas were dictated to the authors. It's a it's a little less strict than the robot view because personality is allowed in there uh and it is inerrant. Um uh but that's that view was the traditional one, right? That's traditionally been held uh and taught within churches. That's what I grew up being mm-hmm. taught and all those things. Uh that one works. Um, then view number three, we think works as well, uh, inspired concepts that God gave the writers, the concepts and allowed them to put them in their own words. We said that that may or may not be inerrant, um, at, based on the definitions that we just gave in a moment. And I think Spencer and I will talk about kind of where we fall here in a second. Uh, and then number four was personal encounter. The Bible has some errors, but through it, the reader encounters God. Uh, this is from uh, a guy named Carl Bart. Uh, and uh, an, an older theologian who has since he's been uh, passed for a while, uh, but his literature still uh, is heavily used. Uh, he says, just as the dog hears his master's voice through the imperfect phonograph recording so the Christian can hear God speak through uh, errant scripture, even scripture that has mistakes, we can still get a a feel, an idea of God, uh, and to some degree, any of those three works. Spencer, do we want to say kind of where you fall, and then yeah or not? Yeah. You want to keep it a mystery? So you, you know
1: the 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 reason that you know we we say that any of those three work, I think, is because it, it you, we have to keep. First and foremost, the purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to us. So as long as we're coming to Scripture as authoritative Word of God that's revealing to something bigger than just Scripture, I think we're in a good place. Um, but kind of where I fall uh, is I fall more in a inspired concepts that God in inspired, gave the, the writers the concepts, let them... You put them in their own words. Uh, I, I think there's some issues with tying things directly to the words. Uh, I, I think you get some problems, for example, in what we've talked about, about Old Testament witnessing to what God has done with their knowledge of the way the universe works, things like that, which we see. Um, yeah, before and we'll this have stuff moving
0: forward, too. Yeah, before we'll
1: this episode, discuss. we were talking about. The way the Old Testament is used in the New and Septuagint stuff gets some real problems if we tie it to the words, because the Septuagint messes up what was originally there a lot. And so you start getting into some difficult water, some difficult ground there. Um, Moving forward, we're going to specifically move into talking about the purpose and function of the Gospels, and I think you'll—and we'll point out more there— some of the problems that you can yeah, get when you yeah. want to tie things directly to the words rather than to the, the concept. In other words, the the purpose. What's the theological teaching? Again, we're tying it back to the purpose. What's the theological teaching? I think that's what God reveals and let the authors to their specific audience with their specific knowledge, with their specific vocabulary, in their specific context, get those theological concepts across. I mean, look at Paul. I would say that God, Paul would say, you know, Jesus gave him his gospel, gave him, I think you could say these theological concepts, and Paul is having to get them across in different ways to deal with different problems within different um, churches. And so I would kind of fall, I would fall in that third concept. I would say that scripture is inerrant, but defining it in the way that we have, redefining a little bit what makes something true, defining it. Within the context of the purpose of Scripture, while realizing our limitations in proving that, not being there, not knowing the author's original intentions, things of that nature, even though we can start to kind of piece that back together, but realizing that we don't know for sure, um, and I'll uh, I'll end kind of where I stand with my quote because I know you've got one as well. Yeah, um, J.W. McGarvey. Uh, those of you that are listening with the Church of Christ background, pro- probably may have heard of his name. Yeah, um, yep. Passed away, but a kind of big-time teacher, preacher within uh, uh, historically within the Churches of Christ. Illustrated. Now, he would tie inspiration to the words, and so I'm using it a little bit differently than, than McGarvey, at least the way I understand McGarvey. But I still like his illustration. He illustrated it by a man driving down the street— with a horse hitched to a buggy. So a guy in a, in a buggy, a horse-drawn buggy, uh, driving down the street. McGarvey said, so long as the horse was going exactly like he wanted him to go, the driver did not pull either the right nor the left. But if, before the driver wanted to go home, the horse started to turn homeward, his master would pull the rein, guiding the horse and causing him to go exactly where The driver desired. So the ideas of God revealed these concepts, allows the authors to put them in their own words, but still was guiding the process. You know, didn't allow the authors to make some theological error. Yeah. But while still giving them a lot of freedom. So I think I would want to say that God guided the process of scripture to reveal himself ultimately and primarily through Jesus, for the purpose of redeeming all of creation. That's how I would define inspiration.
0: Uh, I've fallen to the option three inerrant spot there as well. A little more freedom on behalf of the writer, uh, but... That, that illustration is a good one that he just used there, that, that quote. Uh, the quote that I'm pulling up, you might be familiar with if you're into some uh, study stuff now, because he's kind of uh, making uh, waves now, I guess, is the way to phrase that. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, in talking about uh, Scripture and how it's written, he said, Why must we say God chose or gave the words? Why can we not just say God was satisfied by the word decisions made by the people that he chose. Uh, and so one of the things that comes to my mind is um, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of the needle, okay? And Matthew and Luke, the needle, the word that's used, they're different. Uh, Luke being a doctor is using a doctor's needle, and Matthew is using one like you would use in uh, fishing. or yeah, you know, It's a completely different word. Uh, what is the significance to that? Uh, the, the point is still the same. The significance to Luke using a doctor's needle is Luke's a doctor. Uh, and so that's the, that's the way he writes. That's the world he knows. And it communicates the purpose of the, the theological purpose of what Jesus said there. Uh, that it's difficult for those that have a lot of physical wealth to see the need for God and to give those things up in order to follow him. Same idea that's in Matthew but different words used there why because it comes down to their personality uh and so it i, I find ultimately i, I like four a lot less and two being what i grew up with perhaps it's bias i don't know but two i don't think is a bad option it's just harder to defend so uh, the more i look at those things fun Go fact ahead.
1: real quick you just gave the example of two different needles right yes. same point Same statement. Fun fact. uh, Jesus, most likely, historians are fairly confident that he at least did the majority of his teaching in Aramaic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which fits his context a lot better. Uh, They debate whether or not Jesus even knew Greek. Jesus may not have known Greek at all. But at minimum, I I, I think we can confidently say that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Which, main, which makes the Gospels translations of the words of Jesus first off, not to even okay. get into sources and uh, sure oral tradition and all that kind of stuff. but at th- yeah. the start, we're looking at translation. So you know even if you want to say, yeah, you know Matthew and Luke have the same Aramaic saying sitting in front of them, and they choose to translate it differently because they have a different vocabulary. Right, um, yeah, and so, but the point still stands, and that's the thing. It's it's less about how they chose to translate the words of Jesus, and more the meaning of the teaching of Jesus.
0: Yeah, I mean, and to go back to the the horse illustration before we close here, you know, if uh, if Matthew said, uh, "Oh, uh, maybe like a hook or something like that," that's where God's going. No. Like a needle, that's that's to the point of this. You know, it needs it needs to be this thing right here. So I, I would say that that applies in this situation. But as far as the specific needle doesn't matter, the the point is getting across. So uh, that's where we sit. Three inerrant. Three. So right in the middle of the five that we gave. We did say that there were more than five. Perhaps it was a bit deliberate that we gave five though across the spectrum and then said. We sit yeah, right, right in, the in the middle. middle. <laughs> That's right. Uh, anything more to add, Spencer, before we sign off?
1: I don't think so. Even if I did, I would say no, because I think we're out of time.
0: We'll save it for another episode. Um, hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving, and we'll have one more episode before we head into the Christmas, New Year's, holiday part of the season, and uh, then after that it'll be... 2022 and hopefully we'll have a lot more good stuff for you if you've got any ideas criticisms any of that stuff uh, you know where to email us strongchurchministries at gmail.com get a hold of us on facebook or yell at spencer on twitter whenever you get a chance and uh yeah that does it for this episode on inspiration we look forward to building on it here in the future episodes we'll see you next time